Hello and welcome to Courage to Be, a podcast on becoming. This is episode number four. Thank you for listening. I would like to ask that if you find this podcast helpful or enjoyable, that you share with people that you know, subscribe, give a rating, whatever you can do to help us out. Um, We would like to get this out to as many people as we can, but we really do appreciate you taking time to listen to us. This week on episode four, we're going to spend some time talking about the Eightfold Path. If you listened to the last episode, we talked about Four Noble Truths. The first truth being that there is ill-being or suffering. The second, that there is a path to suffering. The third being that there is well-being. And the fourth being that there is a path to well-being, which is the Eightfold Path. So this is what we're going to spend some time exploring. Uh, We also talked about the concept of interbeing, how everything is related and connected. That's important to keep in mind as we talk about these different points on this path, because they are all somewhat interconnected. And when you dig into a lot of this this Buddhist thought, there are many interconnected points that, that we can kind of just dig into and circle around multiple times and get greater understanding of. This is going to be a very basic initial exploration. Uh, I'm here with my my friend, Steve. How are you doing, Steve? I'm doing good. Looking forward to getting into this. Yeah, me too. It was hard to stop last time and not talk about the, the Eightfold Path. Well, and that's the way Buddhism is. Everything interconnects, right? Four noble truths and then before you know it, you're talking about the Eightfold Path and inner being. So, And also, yeah. I, I do want to take a second to say thank you to those that have listened. I've gotten some really nice emails of people that are saying that this has been helpful to them. Um, and that's something that, you know, it's really nice to hear. Uh, if you do want to reach out to us, you can reach us at contact at courage to be pod.com. Uh, you can also go to that website. Uh, it does link to my private practice, but there's a tab there where you can see the different podcast episodes and listen. Uh, you can also find it on all the places where you can find podcasts. But thank you for everybody that's had things to say about this. We've got some constructive feedback that's been helpful, but also some really nice things that people have to say. Steve, I did want to mention that we've had some people ask a little bit about like our experiences. So just real quick, I've been teaching in a, in a grad program for many years. Since 2015, I got my doctorate and been teaching in counseling programs. I got my provisional license as a counselor in 2010, um, and I've been practicing now for some time there as well. And Steve, how long have you been teaching and, and that sort of thing? Just real quick. Yeah, I've been teaching for well over 15, 16 years. Uh, I've taught in different uh, states. First, Colorado, took a stint into New Mexico, then came back to Oklahoma, uh, got my PhD, uh, finished years ago, did it in clinical psychology, then practiced uh, under supervision, but kept getting pulled into research and multicultural work. So I tend to teach those kinds of things. Taught at the grad program at uh, Health Science Center, University of Colorado at Denver, then at NSU. Gosh, this will be you know, 12 years, I think, here in Oklahoma. But I went back to undergrad teaching yeah, you're, you've done both master's and undergrad level. I taught undergrad for a while when I was in my doc program, and then I've been teaching grad level. I also want to say that, you know, we we have the knowledge that we have. That doesn't mean that we're going to get everything right. This is our interpretation of things. This is no substitute for mental health counseling, if that's something that you need. This is just hopefully something that will be helpful to you on your path. But I, I do want to mention that as well. Is there anything you want to add to that, or you want to just dive in to the Eightfold Path? No, I just, uh, I mean, I think we need to talk about our paths professionally, but then also, you know, we are always novices in this complex, complex spirituality and uh, religious uh, framework called Buddhism. You know, some people call it a spiritual path. Some people call it a spiritual practice. Few people really see it as a full-blown religion. Whatever it is, you know, it's so complex that 
I just want to be humble in how I approach this and qualify by saying that. I agree. Um, This is something that as we gain more understanding, just like anybody that's listening, you know, you'll gain more understanding, we'll gain more understanding. As you understand things differently, things change. Also, this podcast right now, we're talking about Buddhism, but we will be branching out into some other realms of spirituality as we go. And also, again, trying to tie this into mental health work as well. So with those points being made, let's go ahead and dive in. Steve, do you want to get us started on this conversation? Yeah, sure. You can't really separate uh, the Four Noble Truths, which we talked about last week. Uh, and when you when you look at the Four Noble Truths, they basically say life is about suffering. A lot of people now would say that that suffering should be translated into dissatisfaction. But the, the Fourth Noble Truth, you see it points to uh, how to end suffering, and that is basically... Uh, the method of the Noble Eightfold Path. And the way I was taught to view it and have come to really uh, use it in my life, I mean, Buddhism, you have to do it, that these are the eight paths to liberation. And we'll talk a little bit about what liberation means, but basically you're moving away from your own concepts and projections. And uh, through the Eightfold Path, you wind up uh, enhancing, if you practice it and embody it, Um, better moral conduct, uh, better mental discipline, and then wisdom. And the Buddha did teach that the Eightfold Path was core teaching. It was a part of a lot of his exposition from uh, his enlightenment onward. And so we should probably start with what the Eightfold Path is, or what I call the Noble Eightfold Path. And it's right understanding. Uh, Second is right thought. Third, right speech. Fourth, right action. Right livelihood is number five. Sixth on the path is right effort. Seven, right mindfulness. Eight, right concentration. And I'm going to let Chris go into some qualifications about some things here, especially the word right. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. So whenever we think about the concept of right, especially in our Western culture, you know, there's right and there's wrong. Um, And that might imply that there's a particular way that you have to do things. And that is not accurate for this. Um, another way of looking at it is the, the phrase wise. So it'd be like wise understanding, wise speech, etc., or the word skillful. And those are two that I find helpful. Also, the second one, you know, right thought or wise thought. Another way of thinking about that, another phrase that I've heard is intention. So that would be like wise intention or skillful intention. And so I think it's helpful to disconnect the the concept of right or wrong from this because that's not what is most helpful with this. Instead, wise and paying attention to your intention. Um, I think those are some some points that I would qualify this with. Yeah, and I, I want to add that these aren't sequential. I mean, when the Buddha taught about these, he taught them, of course, by number, Eightfold Path. Uh, my Buddhist friends often tease that Buddhists love numbers for noble truths, Eightfold Path. You know, and it's true, but these eight practices, if you will, you won't do them sequentially. Uh, there's really no way to do it. And knowledge feeds wisdom, and wisdom feeds knowledge, and then they both feed behavior. And it's so important to realize that Buddhism is about doing something. There's not any truth that I can think of that is expounded or given that is uh, based on authority. It's like, go out and try this 
and do it and see for yourself if it works. Matter of fact, that's what drew me to Buddhism with this, this idea that you could be a better person through mental discipline, which is part of the Eightfold Path, but also through your behavior and your reflection. So yeah, these go together uh, and they go together with other Buddhist teachings in a holistic way. Yeah, they, they all play off of each other and, and feed each other. I, I know that in a lot of imagery, this is represented by a wheel with eight spokes. Like they all are interconnected. They all support each other. Um, and this is also something that's always in progress. I can certainly look at points in my life where I didn't do some of these things, or even as I'm trying to to be mindful of this now where I'm like, yeah, I didn't do that so great. I mean, this is this it's a practice, meaning it's something that you you do, knowing that you're not gonna always get it right. Like, for example, mindfulness, as I mentioned before, not so great at mindfulness, something I'm working on. Um, so I think that's that's helpful to say. Uh, so, Steve, do you want to dive into some of those? Sure. Well, well, now that I say it's not sequential, I'll, I'll go sequential and uh, start uh, with the very first. Um, right understanding. Yeah, right understanding. And, you know, right off the bat, we have to pay attention to the fact that we perceive things uh, just in a distorted way. We typically don't, the, the Buddha taught, we typically don't view things outside of our own filters, as psychologists would say, schemas, you know, the, the cognitive filters that we use to organize and perceive information out there in the real world. And if we can move away from our distortions, we can actually see the world as it actually is. And so this idea of understanding what's out there is based upon stripping ourselves through meditation, scholarly practice, and then also taking the practice into our lived and real world. Again, back to the point of, you know, this is something we do. We don't simply read it and the knowledge itself will help. We've got to go practice this. So it, right understanding speaks to the idea that we can achieve, and the Buddha said we could, that we could achieve through meditation, scholarship, and practice. We could start to perceive things as they are in actuality, stripped down from all of our concepts, schemas, and projections. Now, here again with the intertwining, when we think about number two, right thought, uh, by this practice, we then create a healthier, more uh, balanced, caring, and wise set of thoughts in our mind. The stream of consciousness uh, after practices, compared to pre-practicing the Eightfold Path, you begin to create what Chris said, a wholesome conscious stream, or so the Buddha urged us to do. And then that in turn leads to right speech. And and so the, these go, go hand in hand. These are the things that we do to be in better relationship with the world. Now, right speech is interesting because I look out at the world, I meditate, I read, I study, I, I do work on myself, I pay attention to how I project something that isn't there. And the classic example is always, you know, walking in let's say at dusk and you see a hose outside and you think it's a snake. Well, right understanding would say it's a hose, but you've misperceived it due to some distortions there. Maybe you're a little anxious or, or snake phobic. And so you're kind of projecting that there. And interestingly, that causes suffering through the distortion, I would say. And so that right understanding aligns you more so with what's going on or what's actually happening. After you do these practices a while, you start to develop, again, that, that, that proper way of thinking. It's balanced. It's not distorted. Now, when it gets down to how we speak, wholesome speech, wise speech, is speech that doesn't harm, speech that doesn't create 
negativity, speech that is not based upon gossip. So here again, we have this notion of being accurate and being balanced and being grounded. And when right speech, there are no prescriptions here uh, in Buddhism. You gotta gotta make it work to the context. You gotta make it work to the situation. Right speech may be holding off and not saying something till it's proper to say it. You don't just rush in and assert yourself or behave aggressively. You may hold some things off. Again, no recipes. In other situations, if you do have to confront or assert, you do it in a kind, loving, and compassionate way. My understanding of these is similar, but there's there's just a couple points that I would make, so I'm going to kind of hit on the same ones. And I'll start with a story that has been very helpful to me. You know, there's, you know, there was a farmer that had these horses, and they were really well-bred horses. One day, his horse got out and ran away. And so the neighbor came over and said, you know, how terrible is it that your horse left? You know, this is a terrible stroke of luck for you. And, and the farmer goes, who's to say what is good and what is bad? Uh, the next day, the horse comes back, but it actually brought back with it a few other horses. And, and the neighbor came over and said, this is wonderful. How lucky for you that these horses came back. That's such a stroke of luck. The, the, the farmer said, you know, who's to say what is good or what is bad? You know, and then later... The farmer's son was working on trying to break these horses and train these horses. And as he was doing that, he fell off and broke his leg. The neighbor again comes over and says, you know, what a terrible stroke of luck that your son is injured like this. This is so, so horrible. And the farmer says, who's to say what is good or what is bad? You know, and then later the army comes through and tries to conscript people, but they can't take the son because, you know, his leg is broken. But they take the neighbor's son and the neighbor comes over and says, you know, who's to say what is good or what is bad? Right. I love that story because things happen and and our perception may not be accurate. So when we're looking at understanding, when we look at right understanding or or wise understanding, I think understanding that we don't have all the picture. We don't have the whole perspective and we may attach to something and think that it's good or think that it's bad. And we may not have the whole picture. It's not on us to say if it's good or bad because we don't have the entire scene. We don't know everything. And so having understanding that any given thing that happens arises because of the causes and conditions that, that occur that let that happen. And it's not on us to, to, to judge that as good or bad, but to simply understand that it is, I think is helpful. Um, in terms of right thought or wise thought, another way that I've heard that discussed is intention instead of the word thought. And I think that's helpful, too, because, you know, whenever we look at moral systems or laws or rules, things change. It's a cultural thing. But intention is important. And so really being clear on what your intent is and whatever you do, uh, to me, is fundamentally tied into all of this as well. So when you are looking at your action, for example, what is the intention in what you're doing? What is the intention in what you're saying when you're looking at speech? Um, is the intent to cause harm? Or is the intent to to reduce suffering? That that really does play into whether you know your speech is right speech or wise speech or skillful speech, whichever phrase you want to use, because the intent matters. And so, what is your intent? And are you mindful of your intent? Are you just being reactive? Are you on that horse that's running where you it's out of control, or are you being paying attention and slowing it down, as we've talked about before, and and knowing your intent and then basing what you do based on. Um, you know, wise intent then drives into wise speech and wise action and so on. So that's something I would add. Yeah, there's still a little bit on right speech to be a little bit more direct. Uh, you know, right speech means you shouldn't gossip, shouldn't tell lies, you know, no, no, no backbiting, slander, 
you want to you want to make sure you're not causing harm here. Um, but again, no recipe. The thing that is uh, impressive to me about uh, Buddhist practice is it's relative. But if you can cultivate these. Um, this noble heart, this this good balanced heart, again through practice, it comes about naturally. I mean, you know, we talk about if you want to play tennis or ride a bike, you got to practice it. Same thing here by practicing uh, the different uh, techniques in Buddhism, the different methods. There is a shedding of ego. There is a shedding of this tendency to be less compassionate. So these are going to sound a little like a set of formulas, but I just want to keep in our sight that it's a matter of doing things. And you do, I found in over a couple of decades of doing uh, the meditation and the, and the study, something changes and shifts to where you want to do what's right. And that's in a lot of scholarly writing and reading. Uh, that there's something comes about to where you start to behave naturalistically more ethical and more uh, to create harmony versus disunity. And I think, you know, you say not doing harm. What I would add to that, and this is my understanding, and it could be incorrect or not work for other people, but, you know, there's sometimes we do things or say things that are that people don't like or that hurt them, but it's the intention that matters, right? And so what is your intent in that? So it's unnecessary harm, unnecessary pain, unnecessary suffering, right? Um, I think that's, that's something to, you know, why are you doing what you're doing and being clear on that? And if you're not doing it for healthy reasons, then, then don't do that thing. Yeah, I read a great article. Uh, neuroscience has a lot to learn from Buddhism. And these, uh, I'm not going to remember their names. Of course, we could find a link for folks if they want it. But one of the neuroscientists uh, said that there are some clear examples of how we begin to change and become more calm and more caring. And so uh, it, it's as if when we do mess up and maybe say something out of anger in time with practice, we pause instead of just adding fuel on the fire by getting more angry or maybe more shamed out for something we've said that hurts someone. And so it was really invigorating to read about these studies and these neuroscientists that would say you actually actually see brain changes and such in uh, the interconnectivity to where you can pause. Thich Nhat Hanh makes a big deal out of stopping, training yourself to just stop. And I think that's very powerful when you do say something that's not right or you maybe hurt someone. You can stop, pause, and then acknowledge that your intention maybe was off or, the, or whatever came out was misaligned with your intention. There's that dichotomy, right or wrong. <laughs> yeah, and we're going to go back and forth with this right thing. I mean, I've practiced a while and it's just so ingrained. Call it right. Well, no, I, I, I catch myself doing it too. Um, I think that that's, that's, that's very natural. Um, that's the way that it has been termed for so long. Well, but you, you do well to draw attention to wise, noble. This is the noble eightfold path. So these are noble actions. Well, and, and a point that, that we've made in other podcasts and something that, that I've told clients too is that, you know, you do the best you can until you can do better, then you do better. You know, I, I don't want it to sound like we're being preachy here. These are, these are ideals. These are, these are things to strive for, but we all fall short. Um, and in anything that we strive to do, right? That's, again, why it's a practice. So the idea is that when you find yourself behaving in a way or thinking in a way that is unwise or unskillful, and you can catch that, then you can start doing something different. And you can start to try to engage in your world in a different way, in a way that is more genuine and authentic, 
with the, the kind of life you want to live if this is part of that path for you. So again, that's just kind of a, a point that I wanted to make mm-hmm. as well. And a good point. So we were talking and we, we hit into speech, but do we want to talk a little bit about right action <laughs> or wise action? Yeah, let's move into right action. Do, do you want me to take that one or you want to take that one? Go for it. Go well, for it. And yeah. again, this is all interconnected and comes about through practice. But right action speaks to how we we promote moral, caring, and honorable, peaceful uh, conduct, our own. There is some uh, efficacy to if we can behave in a certain way, we can influence the situation around us. But this is mainly focused on our own behavior. A right action, uh, Buddhists are pretty clear, uh, or most Buddhist doctrines, all Buddhist doctrines, that right action includes not taking life, not destroying any form of life, uh, no no theft, no uh, dishonest uh, interpersonal or business or professional dealings. And it also speaks to the fact that we should have right action in our sexual behavior because there's so much hurt and damage that can be caused through that. And you know, the right action notion, the right action path is to create peace and honor. And so we actually live our lives in a uh, wise and caring way. And that's something, for example, you talk about no killing. Um, I love barbecue. And so um, (laughs) I'm not a vegetarian. (laughs) Um, And so that's an area where I probably fall short um, in terms of not strictly holding to the to the ideal, right? A little Buddhist story for you here, because it's an interpretation. And most of these are context-driven. I mean, there's no... Uh, my first Buddhist teacher would say there are no recipes. You take these and you apply them and you're going to come out with different results because the context and the situations are different. Buddhists eat meat, some do. Uh, we had a fellow come over, I think he was uh, from Tibet here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where I'm at, and a uh, great speaker, did, did all kinds of trainings for over a week. And we were all nervous when we uh, we were looking for you know, a vegetarian restaurant, assuming that he didn't eat meat. And so we finally find a place. <laughs> what does he order? You know, he orders a meat dish. And, you know, we talked about it openly. And he said, well, you know, in, in my culture, we, we have to rely on uh, on meat because we it's the farming dries up and it's kind of desolate. And so, you know, we, ha- we have to then eat meat. So, again, there are no recipes. Some folks eat meat, some folks don't. You know, and you could even go so far as to say tilling the ground uh, to matter of fact, one of the stories of the Buddha was he noticed uh, when he was a little boy, he noticed when they plowed the fields that it disrupted the birds and the worms were then unearthed and the birds would fly down and, and eat the worms. And so he, he saw suffering even in what we, you know, would call vegetarian behavior, if you will. So, uh, yeah, it's it's a matter of awareness and choice, and I and I think it's a matter of being aware of not harming. If I see a spider, if I see a fly, my first reaction is not to smack it. I mean, it's to now to try and let it out of the and let it out of the room. Uh, there's a Buddhist fly zapper that actually sucks the flies into a little tube, and you can release them. So, uh, I, yeah. Now, I don't have that. See, I'm not going to go that far. I grew up in Oklahoma, so it's like bugs are bugs. So I, I slip even there too, but matter of interpretation. There's interpretations of this that talk about not ingesting anything that's harmful to yourself. So alcohol or or different substances like that, or you know, not eating meat. And so there's a lot of different interpretations of this. And it's something that anybody that does, you know, decide to look into this would have to figure out for themselves. Well, you you know and I know I love my micro brews. 
some Buddhists will abstain completely from alcohol. I tend not to, but I do pay attention. I don't, there's never a time since becoming a Buddhist that I would drink any more than two microbrews a night because I've read teachings that basically say, don't imbibe to the point that you're mindless. Well, and I, again, I think that intent piece comes in. What is the intent in your action? Are you hunting because you just want to kill or are you hunting because, you know, you want to, I'm in Missouri, everybody, I don't hunt, but so many people do, you know, are you doing these things because it's something that is necessary or something that is, you know, good and helpful? I know folks that the deer that they, they kill, that's their meat for a large portion of the year. That's, that's how they eat. Oh, big right. Time. And so that's very different than someone doing something different than that. Right. You know, and when you're, if you're imbibing an alcohol, why are you doing it? What's your intent? Is your intent to black out and, and dismiss the world? Then that's probably not wise. That's probably not skillful. You know, that's, that's very different than, than, you know, having a drink, for example. But again, these are all moral decisions that anybody would have to individually make. I feel like we're getting off too far into the judgment weeds here. Yeah. And you know, it, it's uh, what it, it puts the responsibility on individuals to stop, as you say, and look at the intention. One thing that tortures me to this day was a phrase a teacher gave me, what are you doing by doing that? And, uh, you know, that can be pretty torturous. You know, you come in and, I don't know, you have a new, uh, a new car or whatever. I drove up in, in a new Honda once back in back in the days, and I had to take a look at that. So it's not always, you know, you're wrong. It's just a matter of being conscious and aware of your decisions to help with your intention. Moving on here, the idea, you know, the next one is right livelihood or wise livelihood or skillful. And my understanding of that is that, you know, what are you, how are you making a living? How are you sustaining your life? Is it something that, again, with intention, that is adding to the world or is it causing harm? You, you want to choose to Invest your time and, and energy into something that is not causing harm in terms of how you make your living. Um, and that can be in terms of how you do your job. It's not like saying there are good jobs or bad jobs. It is how you choose to engage and what's your intent and how you do the things you do as you make your living. Yeah, and I think here um, you can get off into the weeds here and get, get it can be confusing to me. Because uh, I've heard some teachings where you simply can't do anything, you know, in your livelihood, in your conduct that would uh, harm animals or kill animals. I've heard stories of Thich Nhat Hanh has uh, a lesson on telling a uh, man who deals in arms, you have to find other work. Now, now he doesn't, you know, like say, or else. And he uh, basically says, you'll be in my in my Buddhist prayers and thoughts, because this is something you're going to have to figure out, because this is a direct uh, violation, if you will, of right livelihood. Yeah, this is where uh, Buddhists are pretty clear that they're opposed to any kind of war, any kind of direct arms sales and causing harm or evil as a means of your livelihood. Um, I also want to, to point, um, as we've mentioned in previous podcasts, you know, boot, um, Steve and I came to Buddhism in some different ways, and we're in different spots on our journey. My readings have been more of the secular nature, I think. Um, and so I, Steve has a much greater depth of knowledge in some of this than I do, for sure, because you've been practicing for quite some time. Again, I know people who are, whose knowledge is even more vast. I get nervous when you say that because it's like, oh, gosh, I'm not a good meditator yet. But I have studied it a while. You know what's fun is as a part of doing this podcast, I have become more intentional in my mindfulness practice. Oh, good. Um, and have actually, I don't think I told you this, Steve, but like in the last two weeks, I think 
11 or 12 out of 14 days, I've actually engaged in some mindfulness ah, meditation yeah. of some sort, Good. Good um, which those people that know me know that that is a big deal, which is kind of funny that I'm doing a podcast where we talk about mindfulness and I'm terrible at <laughs> at least the typical like sitting there focusing on your breathing, emptying your mind, that sort of meditation. Before we go on, I just wanted to say that uh, in, in instructing folks in Buddhism and, and practice, uh, it's come to my attention that we're busy, fidgety people, you know, and we'll talk about this at some point in the future, the monkey mind idea where, you know, our, our brains and our cognitions, are we're always busy. And I read an article that said sometimes it's good to start with movement meditation like Tai Chi or even walking meditation and then ease into the breath meditation. And that was specific, that article specifically focused on we Westerners who have a hard time with the sitting and breathing. Well, and, and one of the ways that I was practicing mindfulness is, is, you know, I'm a musician. I play drums. I play guitar as well, but I play in a band where I play drums. And we had rehearsal last night and we were working on a set. It's, you know, we're playing like 16 songs. And there are sections of songs where I don't do anything. You know, it's one of the more ballady, slower things. And I just kind of sit there. Um, and a lot of times in practice, I don't do this at shows, you know, but at practice, um, back when there were shows before COVID, you know, I might check my phone or I might see that I got an email from from a student or from a colleague and I'll like read that email because I need to know what's going on. And so as part of my mindfulness, I decided to to put that stuff away and and focus on the music and focus on playing. And if I caught my mind drifting to other things, I, you know, kind of just notice it, not judge it and bring it back to focus on the playing that I was doing and, and the way that, you know, the interactions between the other musicians and, and all of that. And so there was varying levels of success with that over the course of the two hour rehearsal. But that was an exercise in mindfulness. And that is certainly doing something. It's not just sitting there, right? Yeah, yeah. Tuning into the moment. I mean, you know, the goal is to be in the moment. At one point in time at a retreat, I focused on the hum of the air conditioner, which started out irritating the hell out of me. And then I just said, okay, use that as an object. Tune into that sound and that hum. <laughs> I think we're up to right effort. We are. Do you want to talk a bit about right effort? Yeah. Well, when you think about think about we humans, we're active and we do things. We're, we're agents in our life and have impact on others. And the idea behind right effort is to be deliberate and intentional and wise about, you know, your energy to prevent uh, any sort of negative or unwholesome states of mind from arising. Uh, you want to move into a, through this practice of the Eightfold Path. One of the things you want to move into is states of mind that lead to the right kind of effort in your behavior and your thoughts that uh, rid us of uh, so-called uh, unwholesome states in, in humanity or in your individual life. Uh, and you want to create, uh, through your effort and your actions, behaviors and interactions that lead to good and wholesome states of mind. And so you're creating through this effort these wholesome states of minds that kind of come about and they arise within your uh, psyche and, you know, who and what you are. And you want to develop and bring uh, perfection to good and wholesome states of mind. And that then in turn leads to how you uh, conduct yourself internally and how you interact with folks around you. So just the right kind of wise effort here. Um, and, and the next one is mindfulness, you know, wise mindfulness or skillful mindfulness. Yeah, that's where we, uh, again, through practice, become more mindful um, in, in our awareness. You know, it, it's kind of, I always thought it was a little bit ironic that this is about being more mindful. Okay, I'll take that on. I'll try that. And back to the practice, it took 
years to to even get halfway good at calming my monkey mind down and being mindful. Okay, I feel like I'm more mindful in the moment, engaged with the moment versus thinking about the past or worried about the future. Now there's a right mindfulness, you know? And so it's like, oh, brother. But, um, you know, through meditation, uh, you can get to a point where, you know, you're just, you're right there with things. Uh, you pay attention to what's going on within your body you know, what you're feeling and what you're thinking. It's it's a matter, again, uh, of being skilled at being congruent with what is going on. And this is specifically about what's going on in your mind. These all interconnect. We've said that. And so this is really a, a, an example of that because through all the other things we do on this path to alleviate suffering, our ideas and our thoughts, how we conceptualize things, like what's going on here. I would say that we become more kind and uh, practice equanimity here to where we don't you know, project blame. We don't think in terms of nasty thoughts of other people in time, you know, and we, here's, here's the thing that really speaks out here to me, right? Mindfulness leads you to being, holding yourself in esteem and not being negative about you. So that, that's how I kind of throw that, this one out there. And talking about holding yourself in esteem and not being negative towards yourself, you know, we've talked about mental health and, and I do intend to, to bring all of these back around into some psychological concepts here in, in a bit. I'm either in this episode or the next one, depending on time. But if you look at a lot of the things from a cognitive behavioral perspective, the, a lot of the things we tell ourselves about how things should be or shouldn't be or must be, that, that feeds right into that. You're not being kind to yourself. You have these negative self-talk scripts that, that you can identify through mindfulness and, and you can examine that and you can say, what part of me is feeling this way? What part of me is thinking this? Um, and is is it true? Is it skillful? Um, is it useful? Those sorts of questions can be be very helpful at kind of challenging and disputing those beliefs that, are, that cause so much distress for us. So this is a way of going about doing that. And I would add to that that right mindfulness is is about being you know, mindful and aware of when you are being negative and creating better, healthier pathways to thinking and feeling about yourself. And another cultural point, you know, the Dalai Lama used to come in and do his talks initially in this country, and he would, you know, shame on you. You know, he, he's a powerful speaker and a warm and fuzzy guy, deep voice. And he would notice people uh, would, would be really hurt when he said that. I think that some people would even become tearful. So he asked one of his attendants who were from American culture, you know, what's going on here? And uh, they said, well, Venerable, you can't say those kinds of things here because Americans are really hard on themselves. They have this idea that there's, they're negative and sinful. And he, his response, this is well documented, was, why in the world would you think about yourself that way? You know, Buddha nature, Buddha nature is good. And so, you know, when you make that point about holding yourself in esteem, or I think I brought it up and you embellished it, whatever, but that's really important that being mindful and aware and caring, it certainly does extend to the self because remember self, we're a part of things and we, we need to honor and treat ourselves well because we would do that for other entities, but we often won't do it for ourselves. And no one is more deserving of love than yourself is another Buddhist phrase. Well, and you mentioned uh, Buddha nature. Can you real quickly just hit on that? Because that may be a phrase folks aren't familiar with. Well, um, if we look at what we are, our core, uh, what's what's underneath all the conditioning and all the layers of societal, familial, and institutional imprinting, that our nature fundamentally is good. It's just all the imprints on it. We're, we're, we've got good energy. We've got caring energy. 
I really believe, or at least my experience has been, and many people write about this, that when you stop all the busy mind and you do engage in, in a mindfulness practice, uh, you start to peel back layers of, uh, the only thing I can think of is your, to call it is your conditioning, what you've kind of been, what's been put together in terms of your habits and your dispositions and uh, even your personality. Certainly in the West, it's kind of negates the fact that we are good inside. And so Buddha nature is that spiritual energy, uh, mental, psychological energy that's at core. And, you know, psychologists talk about this with the, you know, the tabula rasa, although that's not, we don't really believe that every human being, because of genetics and biology, is a blank slate at birth. But certainly uh, we're very impressionable and very much imprinted upon to be negative and to just to get along with society and, and peers and family. We take on a lot of negativity and at, at our core is this beautiful, bright, shining energy. So Buddha nature, now there are going to be people that differ in and have a different definitions there. But, and I think that's really important to come to, and again, I came to it through meditation and practice, that every day is a good day. Every person is a good person. It's what has come about in their life that has suppressed that. Well, and in my clinical work, that's something that, you know, going into this field of mental health work, I had thought. Um, and then the more I work with people, the more I see that no matter what their story is, no matter how many terrible things they feel like they've done, there, there tends to be a goodness there that if they could get out of the way, you know, if they could create the environment where that could be nurtured and grow. Again, we talked, you know, when we talked about the, the, the Four Noble Truths, you can feed suffering, you can f- feed ill-being, or you can feed well-being. You know, so what are they, they feeding? And so I, I think that that's something that, that is, is helpful to focus on. And I think is I agree with is that, you know, we do have an internal nature of goodness that sometimes gets uh, subverted. Well, and I would add to that, again, through different teachings, that, that that goodness is based upon an innate love and an innate being a part of, uh, of everything, really. And that self-love and being able to give love and compassion to others through socialization and and imprinting gets taken away or gets channeled into other things. And I love uh, a great teacher, uh, Shogyam Trumpa Rinpoche. Uh, Pema Chodron is a big American Buddhist teacher. Her books are great. Uh, she really speaks to what Westerners go through because she was a teacher, lived in lived in normal, <laughs> whatever that means, American life, and then she converted to Buddhism and is now an esteemed teacher. But her teacher was Shogun Trumpa Rinpoche, and he would say, you know, even you know the meanest people, the most uh, subversive people, everybody loves something, even if it's tortillas. <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, you can, and, and that was a way to illustrate that seed of love and kindness is still in everyone, even if it's just tortillas or whatever. So the next one that we have is right concentration or wise concentration. This is a a matter of uh, mental discipline, uh, right concentration. And the Eightfold Path, you know, some of these, we'll talk about that down the road here, but some of these are about how to get in line in terms of your mind and uh, focused on uh, how to discipline the mind. Because, you know, back to the monkey mind, you know, we'll jump from thing to thing to thing to thing. And through this practice, you ferret that out and you can actually be more aware uh, and more focused in your concentration. Uh, in uh, right concentration, you you basically discipline the mind through Buddhist practice. 
and you go through um, stages uh, where passion and desire, unwholesome thoughts, even even things like uh, lust and ill, you know, uh, manipulation and ill will to start to subside so you can focus more in on doing the right thing. Uh, a lot of worry can go on here and restlessness. And again, through the practice, we kind of ferret that out and come to a point where we know what to focus on. It's hard to talk about these because we I'm thinking about what we've talked about and what we still need to talk about. This is embedded. Again, these don't come out sequentially, but uh, you go through different stages. And uh, there's a second stage where your intellectual activities, you know, your your thought processes become more tranquil and more focused. And as the mind evolves and develops through practice, you feel more joy and happiness. You can hold on to those kinds of things. Then you go through another phase where you actually, uh, and I, I can attest to this, feel spontaneous joy. You know what to focus on. You're happy to be alive. There's active uh, sensation. Uh, you don't pay attention to pain as much. You pay attention to uh, you know things that make you feel better. And you begin to evolve toward a sense of what's called mindful equanimity, or, you know, a balanced mind, a balanced heart. And then finally, you hit a stage where sensations, even happiness and happiness, joy, sorrow, they kind of go away. And you just, you're just resting in this pure state of balance. And again, as Buddhists call it, equanimity, where you see the equality and the connection of everything. I'm not there yet. I'm not either. I'm not either. Right. But uh. so there's, you know, we just hit on the eight just now. And I do want to dig into this a little bit more uh, and go into some more depth. And, and as I said, you know, there's some psychological concepts that I would like to talk about. Um, and, and, you know, Steve and I have discussed um, in previous conversations, not on the podcast. But what I think I'd like to do real quick is actually just just kind of take a step away from this. And because I think this is a good stopping point for this week. What we'd like to do is the next episode, dig into this just a little bit more. And so uh, I think I'd like to just take a break if that works for you, Steve. Yeah, yeah. I would just close and say that if, if you do any reading, you'll you'll run into this uh, sentiment, this assertion that really the Eightfold Path was the core of all that the Buddha taught. I think I alluded to that earlier during, I think, for the 45 years or so that he taught, that, you know, most everything in some way hinged upon this, uh, the Noble Eightfold Path. Well, and I can tell you that from my perspective in my own world, this has been something that has really changed the way that I interact in the world. It's something that has made me more intentional in terms of how I exist and, and the ways that I behave. Uh, I'm really excited about our next conversation. I'll be completely honest with you, because what we're going to do is we're going to kind of break this out into some of the the different hierarchies that it's um, understood in. And then we're going to talk about it in terms of some psychological concepts, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs and, and some different things like that, that, that I think are going to be really fun to explore. That'll be episode number five. I'd like to thank you all for listening to the podcast again. This is Courage to Be, a podcast on becoming. Um, we really enjoy the feedback we've gotten on this. We hope this has been helpful. Please, you know, follow, subscribe, whatever you feel like is, is appropriate. Uh, and we look forward to talking with you next week. Mm-hmm.